Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. This week, we're going to tell the story of a judge in Texas who built a patent litigation kingdom and isn't going to let a little Supreme Court decision take it all away. We'll be joined by senior patent reporter Ryan Davis to untangle what's going on. Then stick around to the end of the show when we'll talk about the ACLU backing John Oliver's right to make fun of a coal industry executive. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. <laughs> hey, guys. <laughs> that hello, hello is getting bigger and bigger every time. I yeah, appreciate the variance. It's yeah. good. Um, so what are we talking about today, guys? So I want to talk first up about last week. We talked about my use of Whisper Down the Lane. Who could forget? Um, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's burned seared into my, in my memory. Yeah, there exactly. you go. So uh, I, I read a really stupid New York Times story this morning about how they claimed that buttered rolls are a New York thing. Oh, I did see that. Wait, that, yeah. that is untrue, love first it. of all, it's, right? I it's, love it. I mean, it's idiotic. Uh, like, what, what, uh, ice water, a New York thing. Like, what? It, <laughs> like, it just didn't make any sense. But they said it was this regionalism, and it was this thousand-word trend piece about how it was like a thing in it's New York. It's almost like the New York for, Times all, style section is, like, out of step with reality. That, <laughs> that, that never happens. First of all, it's very odd for New York to claim buttered something. Like, that's the South. Right. Let's start with <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where you were going with that, but yes. Well, and the, and I remember even the way that sentence was phrased. Like, if you were to if you were to go hundred miles west and say buttered roll, you would be met with quizzical stares. Right. I, I'm paraphrasing, but, but that's basically but what would they you said. ever. No. Everyone has those. The roll with <laughs> butter on it. Right. It felt it felt like the germ of like maybe a good story. Like maybe maybe people sell more of them in bodegas in New York. But the idea to devote as much ink as they did to it was. It was. I felt insane as I was reading it. I mean, it's the summer. Things are a little slow. Yeah, we know that. If I'm playing fair with the New York Times, somewhat in this in this uh, genus, their little infographic thing about the about the map of dialects and word and phrases yeah. for other thing is literally one of my favorite pieces of journalism of the last like 25 years. But they didn't so. have "Whisper Down the Lane" well, on the telephone, so because it's weird. "Whisper Down the Lane" is weird. South Jersey has texted me heavily in the last week. I'm sure telling... they've supported their own their oh, yeah. hometown boy. Yeah. 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 Well, um, I think we have some good journalism to talk about with our stories. What's the one you want to talk about, Bill? Sort of a weird one. Um, Google and Facebook and a bunch of other really, really big tech companies, website companies, found themselves in a very weird position this week of opposing a bipartisan Senate bill that's aimed at combating sex trafficking. (laughs) So, okay. All right. (laughs) Let's just start with... On a moral level, it seems weird to oppose an anti-sex trafficking bill. does seem bill. weird. Yes. It's so definitely not the headline that uh, Google wanted. They do not want that. So right. what's this bill all about? Why are they upset with it? So the bill is called the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, fairly on the nose. Um, I can get behind that. Written by uh, Senator Rob Portman. It basically would change this 20 or so year old law that shields websites from liability for things that their users do. It's called the Communication Decency Act um, and Section 230 of it. So this would change that law to expressly allow websites to be held liable for anything relating to sex trafficking. It's, It's aimed at one website, really. It's aimed at Backpage.com, which is this very controversial classified site that's been linked to prostitution and sex workers and all sorts of bad things over the years, but hasn't been really ever brought to any sort of justice because it's been oftentimes shielded by this law that Portman and and the 19 bipartisan senators that, that are co-sponsoring the bill, the, the law that they want to change. Now, you have mentioned there's 
one website that is sort of implicitly in the crosshairs, but if Google and Facebook are making noise about it, I would imagine they have concerns about its scope. Yeah. So um, the rule I mentioned, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, it's it's pretty important to the internet. It's it it was passed in 1996, and so it prevents websites from being sued for defamation is the big one, but for mm-hmm. being held liable for for all sorts of stuff that's that's the result of what their users do. So it's it's why if if someone posts something defamatory about you on Facebook, you can sue them. But you can't sue Facebook for hosting the, the right. thing. They're just now. the platform. They don't have to Correct. monitor every single thing that's Correct. set on their site. So it's, you know, along with the DMCA in copyright in the copyright world, that's the which does a similar Digital thing. Millennium Copyright Act. Correct. For anybody who's not way in this like <laughs> Phil and I are. Even I knew that one. But, you know. <laughs> that does a similar thing here where it shields websites from copyright lawsuits. But the, the Internet companies view those two laws as these foundational things that have allowed the Internet to flourish. That, you know, websites billions truly i mean i don't have a hard number here but you know countless there are so many there are so many websites there are a lot of damn websites are loaded up onto websites every day and you know it wouldn't be possible for websites to actively and also delicately and carefully police these things so websites say if we didn't have section 230 immunizing us from these kind of lawsuits that we would face so much liability and be so unable to deal with it that we would either a take these draconian measures to censor people on our websites we wouldn't let them post or we would pre-check everything that they would say or we would be sued into oblivion and wouldn't exist to begin with. So I, either way, it would chill speech on the internet. That's why they view this as so important. I mean, as a person who likes copyright law, I get it. Right. But this is human trafficking that feels just really icky, yeah. like we should be doing more. I think. So I, how do you square those two things? I think the tech companies would tell you that bad facts are making bad law here, that we are taking this outlier situation and trying to gut this really important law that well what and, would they like to see instead well so i think it's important to say here pretty clearly that in the statement that they released they released it through their lobbying group the internet association it mm-hmm. represents every yeah. one of these big companies you know i said google and facebook at the outset just because they're the biggest but yeah, it represents yeah. it, it's the silicon valley lobby mm-hmm. yeah and they released a statement that said we obviously are not supporting human trafficking here we want hard criminal prosecutions against the both the people who are listing and they went so far as to say against backpage against host sites that really do enable this kind of stuff but the point of what they would say is that 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 the bill is overly broad that it, mm-hmm. it you know that, that there are criminal laws that you can use to 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 deal with this kind of stuff but this would allow private lawsuits filed by the victims of these kind of cases. It would allow for uh, state attorneys general to to bring cases. Um, so what they're saying is it, it would create all sorts of liabilities that, that are beyond and and I think they would argue counterintuitive to actually policing human trafficking on these websites. And let me guess, they would probably use a term that law students love a lot, which is a, this would be a slippery slope. I think I, I, I think they would say that. And and um, I think the way they actually phrase it, I have the quote written down here, it jeopardizes bedrock principles of the free and open internet. So basically their argument is use the criminal laws that you have, use the procedures you have. We will help you when we can to, to do that, but don't 
go after this foundational law and and the freedom of speech on the internet to do it. Find a more narrow and tailored way to to deal with it. Great. We'll have to see if that argument prevails. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch this sort of develop in Washington. Yeah. So, Alex, you're up next. What do you want to talk about today? Yeah, I got another one to throw on the big law allegedly behaving badly pile. There's a really interesting case that's picking up steam in Manhattan federal court that involves a former King and Spalding associate who has sued the firm because he claims that he was fired after he blew the whistle on some possible ethical breaches uh-huh. by his bosses, two partners at the firm. Yeah, That's never good. So what are the actual allegations here? So to just keep it really simple, the associate is a guy named David Joffe. He's, a, by all accounts, a pretty capable associate. He started at the firm in 2012, Harvard-educated, logged a lot of hours. Um, in 2014, he ended up uh, on a team that was litigating a dispute for ZTE, uh, which is a Chinese telecom company, him and two other partners. And basically, he became aware or had reason to believe that that the two partners just lied in open court and also compelled ZTE to do mm-hmm. so as Which well. Which would be crazy. Yeah. I mean, it wouldn't I mean like 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 you say, it certainly wouldn't be good. And it's cer- certainly so, something that all the that that the partners are are listening to this aren't uh, too thrilled. So what about, did he do yeah. when he figured that out? Well, when he when he had reason to believe that this had happened, he basically went straight to the firm's general counsel and he said, Look, I I feel like uh, we have run afoul of some ethical obligations here. And actually, he wasn't alone. It, it bears, uh, it, it, it must be noted, we don't have to get into the details of the case, but the case, the, the ZTE case was being lorded over by Lewis Kaplan. And he also raised questions. He even almost sanctioned the attorneys. They eventually um, uh, pulled out of the case. The case settled. The right. So it wasn't, it wasn't like, it, it wasn't like there's no corroborating evidence. Exactly. Right. That's why I felt right. compelled to mention it because right. the judge was scratching his head a little bit, almost sanctioned them. The case settled. So that didn't matter. But anyway, so so he goes and reports this to um, to King and Spalding's general counsel. Mm-hmm. Then what happens to him? Well, that's when things start to get a little weird. And it was right around then that the, the firm, uh, according to his suit, the firm began to take what he perceived as retaliatory actions. He was removed from the partnership track that he was on. Hmm. His pay was frozen. He was denied several bonuses. Um he was then told in a subsequent performance review that his career had stagnated, uh, and he was fired last December uh, before filing suit this so May. I'm sure the firm sees things differently, and that 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 you know he views this as him being fired in retaliation. But what do they say? Yeah, the firm says it's all above board. Um, they say that there's they acknowledge sort of what has happened in the ZTE case, but says it's got nothing to do with you know nothing so, to see here. Yeah. So why did they ax him then? Well. Their direct response to the case said that Joffe repeatedly refused to comply with directives and expectations that apply to all firm associates, which is very broad sounding. Sure. And in subsequent uh, proceedings here, they have said at least the most specific thing that I was able to come across in the filings was that he uh, has failed to turn in timesheets and business plans on time. Huh. Which. Which on the face of it seemed like minor offenses to result in. But it, I mean, a big law with fired. billable hours, and it, it seems like it's, you know, yeah. um, it, it seemed weird to me, and I'm not an attorney, but I felt somewhat validated because the judge who's hearing this case, uh, Valerie Caproni, who was herself a former big law associate uh, last week, uh, she said in court that she had never heard of such a thing. Uh, she said, in my day, associates weren't let go for stuff like this, though she said, and as a quote, maybe things have changed. So um, she's somewhat dubious at this stage. And so what's up next after? She expressed this uh, dubious stance. Yeah, the thing, the sort of newsy bit of this now is that last weekend, 
the parties, Joffe's attorneys and King and Spalding's attorneys basically said, we're nowhere near a settlement and we'd like to go forward with discovery. And uh, she said, yeah, I think that's uh, probably, a, probably a sound so idea. So we're going to dig point. into the emails. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, there's lots of, there's lots of interesting stuff about this stuff always come down to like when things were said and, you know, who, re- you know, who reacted to what and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, I'm sure that. there's a lot of complicated details when it comes to uh, like when, like what they said in court and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and it's all, and, and, and like you say, now the discovery is moving forward, it's all going to come out. So, so any associate listening right now, go fill in your, all your timesheets just in case, just <laughs> in case. All right. Thanks, Alex. years, the Royal Eastern District of Texas has become the hub of patent law in the United States. In fact, nearly 40% of all patent lawsuits filed over the last three years were filed in that single district. Critics say the court turned a sleepy town, Marshall, Texas, into a hot spot for so-called patent trolls. The Supreme Court issued a ruling in May that threatened to change all that, but one judge in the Eastern District hasn't taken the ruling sitting down. Judge Rodney Gilstrap has interpreted the ruling narrowly to keep cases on his own docket. But can he do that? Joining us today is senior patent reporter Ryan Davis, who will help us make sense of how much power one district court judge really has. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's get oriented into this case a bit. What did the Supreme Court decide in this big ruling called T.C. Heartland? So before the court ruled, uh, the existing precedent had been that patent suits could be filed where basically wherever a company makes sales. Um, and because most big companies make sales everywhere, um, a lot of suits were filed in this one district, the Eastern District of Texas, that is kind of viewed as being favorable to uh, patent owners. It was called the Rocket Docket, right? Yeah, it was called the Rocket Docket initially because it was uh, supposed to be like the fastest court, but it has slowed down over the years. Right. But the name has stuck. So what did the, so what did the court say in TC? Um, so uh, the court said basically that uh, patent suits could only be filed where the uh, defendant was incorporated or where it has an established place of business, um, which was a big sea change. Um, it was yeah. viewed as. I mean, this is like the <clears throat> biggest patent decision in, arguably in like 30 years. <laughs> uh, yeah, the people have said that. What uh, did people, we're going to talk about how it may be implemented, but what was when it came down, what was the initial read on what it meant for the landscape of patent litigation? Right. Well, this, while this case was percolating through the courts, the thinking was if the court, if the Supreme Court ruled this way, it would really cut down on the number of suits in the Eastern District of Texas, which is really, as you said in the intro, the hotspot of patent cases. And uh, because it's it's in kind of in the middle of nowhere in Texas, it's uh in the far eastern part of the state near Shreveport, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people thought, well, no companies have a place of business. Seems odd to be litigating things that yeah. have these kind of stakes. But, right. Yeah. So that was the rule. Maybe people wouldn't so, be filing in Texas anymore. So let's rewind a little bit. How did the Eastern District become the Eastern District? Why has it become this? You know, you mentioned briefly that that there were the, that maybe it was viewed favorably toward plaintiffs. But but, you know, situate us here as to how this became this sort of odd situation. So it started out um, 
there was a judge there that I guess just liked patent cases and mm -hmm. wanted to kind of attract um, companies to, to file suit there by promising that it would go quickly, which is attractive to plaintiffs. You want to put pressure on the defendant to right. get them to settle. So if you know it's going to go to trial fast, um, you might want to file there. So uh, there are a number of cases that were filed there initially. And then people realized that there were other kind of procedures that the court had that were favorable to uh, plaintiffs, um, such as they really don't like granting summary judgment. Uh, they don't like to invalidate patents. They want uh, the judges there like to have cases go to trial. And that just kind of snowballed. And there are thousands and, a, and thousands. And a critic of would argue that, that that is an incentive to to the, the, the T word, the, uh, the troll, that, that if right. you wanted to file a nuisance lawsuit, if you wanted to aim at a settlement, you would file it somewhere where it's harder to get the case dismissed. It's more likely to go to jury. Right. right. I'd love to now give our listeners a little color about what this has meant, because Ryan told all of sort of the reasons this happened, mm -hmm. but it started very modestly, like a few plate companies started catching on and deciding to file there. But Ryan, can you tell people what it's like in the Eastern District now? I know you and I have talked a lot about big companies that sponsor things in town and that sort of thing. Yeah. So a lot of the cases, or <laughs> nearly all of the cases in Texas in the Eastern District are filed against big tech companies right. because that's where who... Uh, I understand they have some patents. Patent trolls <laughs> uh, like, to, like to sue those kind of companies. Um, so uh, the big companies realize that they... Maybe they should do something to get on the good side of people, the people of Marshall, Texas, uh, uh, in case they end up on their jury. So the Samsung, for instance, is really taking the lead on this. They sponsor a, an ice rink <laughs> in the town square next to the courthouse nice. every winter. They've donated like tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships Jeez. to kids in the high school. Oh, and they've like serious. they've done things like sponsor the local sports, um, like high school sports teams. Right. Yeah. So, okay. so yeah, they've really gotten involved in this little spot in Texas. Right. It's a population of about 24,000, nowhere near any big cities. And <laughs> right. big companies have uh, an <laughs> unusual interest in this town okay. as a result of these, all the suits out there. So we've painted this picture now of an unusual place to have all of these patent cases and how this Supreme Court decision could upend that. But there's definitely been at least one judge there that's not happy about the potential changes, right? Right. So Judge Rodney Gilstrap has uh, made a name for himself since he took the bench about six years ago for handling by far the most patent cases in America. Uh, I just looked at the numbers before I came in here, and last year there were forty, there were about forty-five hundred patent cases filed nationwide. Uh, just over eleven hundred of them were in front of this one <laughs> it's, judge. It's just such one a person. weird thing. One to, person. For, you know, we work in this world, so I know about this, but it's just such an odd situation to to explain to people. Really pulling right. himself up by his gill straps <laughs> is what we're saying here. Exactly. I mean, okay. he really has become sort of the king of the right. district patent judges right. because he's, I mean, it, it's so disproportionate. He basically, when people hear that he's made some procedural change or done anything like that, they really have to care. They have no yeah. choice but to care because yeah. the odds are so if he's, some point. Yeah. So this is a good question for Ryan. If he's, if we're painting him as like the king of this little patent, uh, you know, fiefdom, uh, what does he have to say about the Supreme Court ruling that would seem to be incurring on his uh, on his on his territory? Right. So after the Supreme Court ruled, some companies started filing motions trying to get their cases out of get Texas out. Yeah. and saying, "Well, we don't have a place of business here, so you can't hear this right. case." Mm -hmm. um, so in one of these decisions, he ruled that 
the company in question did have a place of business in Texas because it had a salesman who worked from home, just one, no other connections to, to the Eastern District, but this one guy lived within this geographic boundaries mm-hmm. of the district. And he said that you have a place of business because of that. So I'm not moving the case. You're, you're stuck here. Right. Uh, and in doing so, he set out a, uh, a test in his decision where he listed all the factors that he would consider when making these And these it was rulings. pretty broad. So yeah. he's, it was basically a play that many have interpreted to mean, hey, here's all the ways I'm going to keep things here. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So he said it, if you have any sort of uh, presence in the district, it doesn't have to be a physical location in the instance of the, this guy <laughs> Interesting. who just lives there. Or even if it is a physical location for people that have lots of physical locations, there's Apple stores everywhere, there's yeah. Walmarts everywhere. Right. Um, so that would leave them in, in Texas. And there are a few other factors as well that you would consider. But the upshot is his ruling was really viewed as trying to hold it on to as many right. cases as he can. So have other courts interpreted TC Heartland since it came down? Um, there have been a few rulings like this, but this uh, his four-factor test that he went through is really the most substantial ruling of this yeah. kind. It's still pretty early. Um, but handling uh, a thousand cases, it's, it makes sense that he was the first one to rule it. Right. And handling a thousand cases, whatever he says there is going to have extreme sure. influence over patent law in general. It's a quarter of all cases would be affected by this. So the Supreme Court rules, everyone thinks it means that the Eastern District of Texas is going to diminish substantially in this, in this patent world. Gilstrap says, no, 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 guys, I have a test for you that's going to stop all that. <laughs> Can he do that? It, it sounds like he's in some ways... Um, defying what the Supreme Court set out. Well, I mean, what the Supreme Court actually ruled was a very kind of narrow question. It didn't say anything about patent rolls. It didn't say anything about the Eastern District of Texas. It was about something that's too wonky to get into. But so what they what the decision left open is what is a place of business, which under its, mm-hmm. under the previous ruling uh, where you could sue anywhere you make sales would never really came up. So it opens up this question, what is a place of business? Right. Uh, and there's very little case law about it because the it hadn't had to be litigated before then. So it's really kind of an open question. Whether he can do it or not, we'll, I guess we'll find out. Well, and that's actually, that's actually the next thing I was going to say to you. So where are we now? This, this got appealed to the federal circuit, right? Right. Well, the company that wanted to move and was told that they couldn't has asked the federal circuit to review the ruling. And it's the, the kind of uh, setup of this situation. It's not a, an actual appeal. They're kind of asking them because the case isn't over. So they're asking the, the court mm-hmm. to step in and say, you know, this is going to have such an impact on patent law. You should rule on this now and mm-hmm. decide whether, you know, this is an appropriate uh, standard. So they've got a bunch of uh, the big tech companies that filed amicus briefs supporting them. Say, you know, it's become like they, a flashpoint for this right. uh, seeing at the scope of the ruling. Yeah. yeah, they're saying, you know, this is going to change patent law if he says we can keep all these cases here. Um, so you should take a look at it now. It's going to be so consequential. So the way it's uh, kind of teed up, the federal circuit will get to decide if it wants to do it now or, you know, in some other case or in this case later on. Um, and we're waiting to see what they come up with. So all eyes in tech and at the lunch spots in Marshall are uh, on the federal circuit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, patent litigation is kind of the cottage industry of the town. Yeah. There's lots of the restaurants and hotels all right. depend on attorneys at coming the Qualcomm in. food court. Or something. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. I was making a joke. I don't know if Qualcomm sponsors anything down there. So. <laughs> right. But that actually does leave us in a good place to stop this. We're going to soon find out if the federal circuit supports this district judge holding on to his power 
or if they side with a bunch of other courts who've said no, spread the patent love around. It doesn't <laughs> all have to be in Texas. Right. Thanks for bringing that to us, Ryan. Yeah, Thanks, sure Ryan. Thing. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and Bill, I think you're going to set up what we're talking about today. You know, normally we like to talk about this week, but right now we're going to talk about last week tonight. <laughs> John Oliver's HBO program. Wait a second, you lost me there. Last week tonight? Okay, yeah. Right. Yeah. It checks out. Do the math. <laughs> All right, cool. Crunch yeah. the numbers. Um, so you might remember that John Oliver was sued last month over a segment that he did on coal. Um, I should say here again um, yeah, for listeners, like I'm from West Virginia, here. and if my parents and family is all listening to this, right. maybe turn off the podcast now. Right, Go tune ahead. out. We're gonna. It's gonna be a little a little uh, talk about John Oliver bashing a I mean, coal we, magnate. Yeah. We, we would like you to keep listening. I, I feel like <laughs> Amber's giving mixed signals here, but yes. Uh, I would encourage you to keep listening. Yeah. yeah. Um, so John Oliver was sued by this big coal company, uh, Murray Energy, for running the segment where he really ripped hard on this one guy. You've, I mean, anyone who's seen the show knows yeah. that he often goes off on certain people. So this guy's filed a defamation lawsuit against Oliver, he and his company, and this week, the ACLU filed a very, very colorful brief uh, supporting John Oliver in the case. Colorful is, to say the least, yeah. this was really a treat to read. Um, so the thing I liked the best was the actual subheads in yeah, the brief. Yeah, the table so of contents. I'm was, just going to read yeah. a few from that table of contents for you guys. The, the, just to, to set this up, Bob Murray is the guy's name. Yeah. So yeah. That's important. Anyone can legally say, eat shit, Bob. <laughs> that eat shit, Bob bit was actually from uh, last week tonight. Correct. From it, the also show. Just, it, it was on the show, but it also just stands true in a vacuum. Right. It, I mean, you can true. tell someone to you eat shit on that. TV or, or in your private life. So another one was, plaintiff's motion for a temporary restraining order is ridiculous. Courts can't tell media companies how to report Bob. <laughs> like, All of these, for the listener... All of these end in comma, Bob. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty great. It's a yeah. It, it, this is this is my favorite sort of category of offbeat story we do is like the brief who's like, like briefs that make us laugh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, 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 like you can feel the ACLU lawyer like feeling herself here. Like, so, like yeah, yeah. So the next one that I loved was all of John Oliver's speech was protected by the First Amendment. You can't sue people for being mean to you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> also true. Again, like this is the these are good lessons. Plaintiff's requested injection is clearly unconstitutional. You can't get a court order telling the press how to cover stories, Bob. <laughs> so, I mean, what was fun about this is is that, like, this is not a new thing for the ACLU. Like, because uh, I was covering the Redskins case a couple years ago, and they filed a brief in favor of the Redskins. And they said, <laughs> the, the the like, the header was... Uh, to the Redskins, you're not wrong. You're just assholes. Nice. <laughs> so I mean, they know how to make a splash. Totally, is what they do. And they made. And I worked on this this story a little bit. And they they made a good point where they said we're we're filing a ridiculous brief to go with a, a patently ridiculous lawsuit, and we're trying to draw attention to how ridiculous it is. But it's a very serious case, and that this guy Bob Murray has filed many of these cases against people who have written bad things about him in the past. Not all of whom have as much money as HBO to to fight back. And I thought the key quote was, this case is beyond meritless. It is offensive to the very ideals of free speech embodied in the First Amendment. It is frankly shocking 
that plaintiffs were able to find attorneys willing to file a lawsuit that is so obviously unconstitutional. This is like yeah. civil liberties porn right they here. They went in hard they on this. Yeah, yeah it was dunked like... on Bob Murray. I also like the uh, uh, the Dr. Evil bit was very funny to me. And the stuff about the squirrel. Yeah. And... The squirrel was actually... If anybody hasn't seen the segment, there was a squirrel on the show (laughs) that was part of John Oliver's jokes. Yeah. Bob Bob Murray did not like that. So I suggest that that anyone who hasn't read this, go and read it. It's on our site or you can go to the ACLU's site. It is very entertaining. Go read it, Bob. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, guys. Yeah. That'll wrap us up for today. Thanks for being with me, Bill. Thanks, guys. And Alex. It was a real pleasure. We have several people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Keller Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest, Ryan Davis. Contributing reporters this week include Pete Brush, Matthew Baltman, and Michael Phyllis. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you want to know more about any of the legal developments we've discussed today, check out our website at law360.com backslash podcast. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.